You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Many of you know that you um, too. The band uh, is is touring this year uh, in, in commemoration uh, of the 30-year anniversary of the Joshua Tree, which was is their award-winning album in 1987 when I was a sophomore in college, one of the great albums of all time. Uh, I have not gone to see them this year, but a few years ago, I, I got a chance to go to a U2 concert, and it was li- a lifelong dream. I've been a fan since high school, and... Uh, my wife bought me tickets or bought us tickets to go to Houston and go to the U2 concert. It was incredible. We, are, are, we had a spot literally 10 yards from the stage. We're standing there and uh, I could just, I could reach out and touch the band. It was, it was amazing. Uh, and, and right near the end of the concert, they were going to sing um, Where the Streets Have No Name, which as you know, is in all likelihood the greatest song in the history of the universe. Um, <laughs> And uh, they're going to sing this song, and this song has this unique, like, minute and a half intro. It's this guitar intro. It's called a repeated arpeggio for you music nerds. It's this broken chord that's repeated over and over, and it just builds anticipation for this song. And Bono, during the intro, the, the lead singer, walked up to the microphone, and he just raised his hands like this. And all 50, 60,000 people in the arena just did the same thing. They just went, ah! And he started jumping up and down like this. And everybody started jumping up and down. And he started clapping. And everybody's clapping. And I'm like, this guy is leading worship here. It was incredible. And he started singing. I want to run. I want to hide. I want to tear down the walls that hold me inside. I want to reach out and touch the flame where the streets have no name. And do you know that everyone in the arena was singing, even those who didn't sing very well, which was almost everyone? (laughs) Everyone was singing, clapping, jumping up and down with their hands in the air. You know why? It was the only thing that was fitting for the moment. The the moment was so great. It would have been weird if you just kind of stood there like this. bored. Bono, in that moment, invited 50,000 people into praise, and we praised with him. It was so exhilarating. It felt like you were made to do that. Klaus Westerman, who's an Old Testament scholar, he says that exalting or praising is part of our existence. He says it's so much a part of our existence that when we cease to exalt God or we cease to praise God, we have to exalt something else. Like, by nature, part of our createdness as a human being is that we have to praise something, and we do praise something or someone. Psalm 113 is a call to praise. Did you notice that it begins in verse 1 with this call to praise? Three words, praise the Lord. And then it ends in verse 19 with the same call to praise. Praise the Lord. It's the Hebrew word, hallel-yah. Hallel-yah. It's our word, hallelujah. It's just a call to praise. It's a very specific praise, though. It's Hallel Yah, praise Yah, praise Yahweh. Praise not just any God that you think of or whatever your conception of God is. Praise this God specifically, Yahweh, the name of the one true God, the covenant God, the God of Israel, the God who fulfilled his plan in Jesus. Praise that God. It's a command. 
It's in the imperative here. It's an urgent command. Did you notice the exclamation points in your text? Four times the psalmist says, praise the Lord, exclamation point. It's a command. But he's not coercing us, is he? He's not manipulating us. He's not trying to get us to do something we don't want to do. Like, get in here, praise the Lord, you knuckleheads. That's not what he's doing. He's asking us to do the very thing we're made to do. The thing that most fits who we are, and that is to praise. Only, he's directing our praise very specifically to the one who's most praiseworthy. The one true God. He's like Bono. He's leading us to praise. But very specifically. And what he's going to say is, as you consider this God... The only fitting response is praise. Now, there are a lot of reasons to praise God. We've seen them in the Psalms this summer, all kinds of reasons. We praise God because he's the creator. We praise him because he's the redeemer. Uh, we, we, We praise God because he's the king. He's sovereign over all things. We praise him because of his character. He's merciful, kind, compassionate, loving, just. He pursues justice. He's righteous. We praise him for all these things. But Psalm 113 gives us a very specific I think, reason to praise God. I think Psalm 113 calls us to praise God for what I would call his self-abasing grace. Praise God for his self-abasing grace. Now, let me tell you what I mean when I say that, because it sounds kind of negative, but I don't mean it negatively. Look at verse 4 and 5. Psalm 113, verse 4. The first three verses are really just a call to praise. And then in verse 4, we start to get into the reasons of why we should praise God. Look at verse 4. It says, the Lord, or Yahweh, is high above all nations. The Lord is high above all nations. And the key words here are high above. So, According to this, there's not a culture, there's not a government, there's not an ethnic group, there's not a people group, there's not a body politic anywhere in all the world that the Lord is not above. Psalm, Psalm 9 says that the nations are made up of just mortal men and women, just human beings. That means they derive their life and breath from him. Any nation that flourishes or has any kind of success gets that from God. Any power or success in a nation comes from God. He has authority over them. He's over every nation and culture. Verse 4 goes on. It says not only that the Lord is high above all nations, it says his glory is above the heavens. His glory is above the heavens. Again, the key word is above. And so his glory is above the heavens, which is just the visible sky, the, 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 vis- the visible space that we can see. His glory is above that. My wife and I were in Colorado a few weeks ago. It was a great time of year to go to Colorado, I tell you what. Uh, at night, we would look up at the mountains, and you could see the stars dotting the sky, just brilliant in the sky. You could see them because we weren't in the city uh, just, it wasn't fading out the sky. But you know what? We had to look up. We had to look up to see those stars. According to this, God looks down on those. God has to look down to see our solar system. God has to look down to see the Milky Way galaxy. But this is not just about elevation, right? It's about authority. God looks down on the heavens because he made them. He rules over them. He has authority over them. And then verse 5 drives the point home about our high and lofty God. Look at verse 5. It's a question. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? Answer, no one. 
No one. He's incomparable. There's no one like him. He's infinitely high, infinitely powerful. He has infinite authority over all the cultures and nations in the world and over the heavens and everything that goes on in the world. There's nobody like him. But watch this. This is incredible. Look at verse 6. But he looks far down on the heavens and the earth. It says he looks far down on the heavens and the earth. So this God who is infinitely high looks far down on the heavens and the earth. Now, I think the ESV translation, which I'm reading from here, misses a little bit of what's being said here, or it doesn't develop it in the way that it could. Because this does not mean that God is looking far down from far away, like, from a, like he's keeping his distance, like he's using binoculars to look down on the heavens and the earth and what's going on in the world. Other English translations say things like this, he humbles himself to look at what's going on in the world. Like he stoops, he kneels, he abases himself, he humbles himself. God brings himself low so he can see what's going on in the world. God kneels to see what's going on in the world. This is what I would call self-abasing grace. It's God humbling himself to observe the affairs of the world. Here's the even more amazing thing, though. As you read on in this psalm, you begin to see that God is not just looking at the world just for the sake of looking at the world. He's not just observing and going, okay, that's what's happening down there. All right. As you read the psalm, you begin to see that God is humbling himself to look at the world in order that he might act in the world. He's humbling himself to look at the world in order that he might be involved in the world in very intimate ways, in the lowest of places. This is the surprising thing about this psalm. God, the high and lofty God, is involved in the lowest of places. Here's what I think is the big idea of Psalm 113. We are to praise the one on high because he's at work down low. We praise the God who is on high because he's at work down low in the lowest of low places. And Psalm 113 gives us a couple of examples of this. I want you to notice them. Look at the first example. We see that God, this high and lofty God, is at work amongst the economically low. He's at work amongst the poor. Even in their situation that looks like God maybe has forgotten them, he is at work amongst them, the economically low. Look at verse 7 and 8. It says, God, this high and lofty God, raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. So he lifts, he raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy off the ash heap. The ash heap could also be called the rubbish heap. It could be the dung heap, the dung hill, some translations call it. It's just the garbage dump. Like in a city like Jerusalem, ancient Jerusalem, cities back then had walls around them, uh, and you did not dispose of your garbage with inside the city walls, because it was unsanitary, you stink up the whole city. So they took all the garbage outside the gate, outside the city, they heaped it up, and they incinerated it, they burned it, that's, that's called the ash heap. Now, the poorest of the poor lived there, amongst the ash heap, scavenging, trying to find something to live on, to sell, to eat, to wear. These were the forgotten members of society. These were the people that nobody paid attention to. Nobody even noticed. God notices them, though, according to this psalm. The God who's on high 
lifted up notices those who are down low in this low place. It's incredible. This way of life is still going on in the world today in in places all over the world. I have some friends who go to Guatemala City every uh, summer, and they serve with a ministry there in Guatemala City called the Potter's House. The Potter's House works among the 11,000 or so people that live in the city dump uh, there in Guatemala City, scavenging uh, just to try to live. And my friend, when she went uh, a few years ago, this is what she wrote about the dump. She said, it's a sea of human beings and vultures moving slowly through the dump valley. She said, it smells like a dirty diaper with curdled milk, rotting food. It's difficult to distinguish the humans from the garbage. She said, random fires break out at the bottom of the dump because of the methane gas. She she kept talking about the bottom of the dump because the, the dump is in this deep canyon, this deep ravine. And she said a lot of people have to go down to the bottom to scavenge, uh, to, to find food for them and for their family, knowing that they might die early because of it, because bad stuff happens at the bottom. She said people there see themselves as worthless, like garbage. They feel worthless because they believe they're worthless. It's a horrible place. That is happening right now in the world, not just in Guatemala City, but all over the world. It's hard to reconcile, isn't it, with our faith? You want to know something amazing, though, in Guatemala City? God is at work in that terrible place. Uh, God has not forgotten those people. You know what the, the Potter's House ministry calls those people? They call them treasures. They refer to them to their face as treasures. Because they're created in the image of God with great value. They are attempting to lift those people off the ash heap. My friend said there's two types of people in the dump. Some have hope, some have no hope. And the ones that have hope tend to be Christians, and they are the ones who are not despairing. They're the ones that begin to see themselves as God sees them and to see others as God sees them. And things are happening. For example, a mother of five leads a group of children, 70 children, in a 10 by 10 room in a Bible school. Couples are actually getting married to strengthen their family bonds. Communities are being formed around the dump area uh, to care for one another. People are being trained in business skills and microenterprises are forming. Children are being educated. See, God is at work there amongst the low, the economically low, to lift them off the ash heap because that's how God works. He works in low places. If you read the biblical story, right away you begin to see that God is at work amongst those with little power, little status, the margins of society. You read the book of Genesis, and you see right away that God typically chooses the youngest, least powerful brother to to accomplish his plan through. You read Exodus. God doesn't choose the most powerful empire in the world to affect his plan of salvation. Who does he choose? They're slaves, the poor, the outcast, the marginalized. God is at work amongst them. So God takes a shepherd, makes him king. God takes a fisherman, makes him an apostle. God takes a poor young girl with no status in society and makes her the mother of the Messiah. That's how God works. God on high is at work down low amongst the economically low. This is none other than grace. This is self-abasing grace. Our glorious God down in the ash heap down in the ash heap, paying attention. Listen, other ancient cultures believed in gods who were high and lifted up and powerful and raised above us. 
That's not unique to Israel. It's not unique to Christianity. But usually people thought those gods were aloof. They were distant. They were not going to get their hands dirty serving human beings because human beings were meant to serve them. That's what it was for. But grace that we see in the scriptures flips that, doesn't it? Like, grace flips our understanding of what the all-powerful God should be like. Grace turns our narrative of what our standing before God uh, should be like on its ear. Because we think it's about our merit and what we bring to the table and what we deserve in our own resources. And grace flips that. Grace says you don't lift yourself off the ash heap. That God lifts you off the ash heap. God sa- the grace tells us that, that wealth and power are not the way out of true poverty. That wealth and power actually left to themselves only enslave us to other forms of poverty, don't they? Grace reminds us that God didn't save the world through power and wealth, but through weakness and through suffering. This is the gospel of grace. Jesus, the Son of God, came down low. He went down to the ash heap. He went to the bottom of the dump for you and me, didn't he? In Hebrews chapter 13, it says that um, when animals were sacrificed in the sacrificial system, they would take, uh, in Jerusalem, they would take those carcasses outside the city gate and they would burn those carcasses there. And then Hebrews 13 says this, in the same way, Jesus also suffered outside the gate. In other words, he went to the ash heap for us. He was incinerated for us. You know what they called that ash heap in ancient Jerusalem? Gehenna. Gehenna. It's our word in our Bible translated hell. What that means is Jesus went to hell, to the lowest of places, so that we could be lifted up, raised up with him in his resurrection so that we could be seated on high with him like princes. We should praise a God like that. How can we not praise a God like that who went down low to lift us up high? We should praise him for all, with all that we've got. Psalm 113 tells us to praise the one on high who has come down low and is at work in low places amongst the economically low. But, but, but the psalmist gives us one other example Uh, We're also told that God uh, is at work amongst the emotionally low, uh, the brokenhearted, the ones who are emotionally low. Look at at verse 9, the last verse in our psalm. It says that he gives barren women, he gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Uh, In every ancient culture, um, there was a connection between the number of kids you had and your security in life, right? The more kids you had, the more people you had to work the farm, the more people you had to make money for the family, the more people you had to take care of you when you got older. And so your security, your future security was linked to the number of kids you had. In Israel, there was even greater purpose connected with childbearing. Uh, Because the scriptures, as you begin to read them, connect God's purpose to bless the world to the childbearing of God's people. So we see God tell Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God tells Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you. God says to Jacob, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And so the salvation and the blessing of the world is going to come through the offspring of Israel. So an Israelite woman 
could actually participate in God's plan to bless the nations, his salvation uh, in the world, in a way that an Israelite man could not because she could bear children. And a man could not. But for a woman who was barren, it was devastating. For a woman who was barren, uh, she saw herself as someone who could not contribute, as someone who could not participate in God's plan to bless the nations. So she felt fruitless. She felt worthless. She felt hopeless. She felt heartbroken. Walter uh, Brueggemann, who's a Hebrew scholar, says that barrenness in the Bible is the effective metaphor for hopelessness. He says, barrenness means there's no foreseeable future. There's no human power to invent a future. So it was hopelessness for this woman. It was heartache for this woman. And I imagine that that woman who experienced barrenness suffered privately. I imagine that in her heartbreak and in her shame, she drew into herself, away from society, away from people, and she entered inward into her house, inward into her thoughts, inward into her broken heart, and that's where she suffered. Here's what's incredible about this psalm. What it's telling us is that that's also exactly where God met her. That's exactly where God heard her. Like God was aware of her pain. It's, it's, this, it's this amazingly tender thought that the God who created the stars and the solar system and the oceans and the ecosystems cares about the problems and pain of one individual. That he would move toward this one individual. This God who, he's tenderly attentive to the pain of one young woman. It's incredible. He notices the heartbroken. He hears the smallness of their cries. He draws near to them. And to that, we ought to say hallelujah. We ought to say praise the Lord that this is the God that we serve. The Bible, thank you. The Bible is filled with stories and accounts of barren women. Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel, Hannah, Elizabeth, and more. And you know what? God always knew their pain. He was always with them. He always noticed them. He always heard them. In the book of 1 Samuel, you read about Hannah who was barren and she's heartbroken, and she prays, and God actually gives her a son. She gives, God gives her Samuel. And you know what she does when she gets Samuel? She praises. Her praise is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 2. This is some of what her song says. She says, those who were hungry are hungry no more. Those who, she who is barren has borne seven children. The Lord makes poor and the Lord makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. She actually sings the very words that are going to become Psalm 113. Hannah praises the one on high who's at work down low. In her heartache, in her lowest place, he noticed her there. He heard her there. And so let me ask you, are you heartbroken over something in your life right now? I know that there are some of you that are. And if you're not, you will be someday. 
Are you experiencing particular grief or pain over something in your life? I know that some of you are. And if you're not, you will someday. Maybe you're just down and low and you don't even know why. Like maybe you're anxious and depressed. You don't know why. Maybe you feel hopeless and you don't know why. Do you know that God notices you in that? And more importantly, do you know that God draws near to you in that? That God cares about you? in that God draws near to the brokenhearted. How do we know that? When Jesus was on earth, he was drawn to the brokenhearted and they were drawn to him, like metal filings to a magnet. Like the people that were most heartbroken, felt most fruitless, most hopeless, most most worthless, were drawn to him and he hung out with them. But you know what? He didn't just hang out with them. He came to do something for them. He came to do something for us, to die so that all the devastation and heartbreak in our life could be set right and the pain could be set right, so that our broken hearts could be made whole again. We know that on the cross, Jesus' heart was broken. What did he cry out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the cry of heartbreak. The one I love the most has turned away from me. Why? So that our broken hearts could one day be healed as we share in his resurrection so that we could know eternal joy in our hearts, in his presence forever. It's grace. It's self-humbling, self-abasing grace, Jesus allowing his own heart to be broken so ours could be healed. And for that, we praise him, right? We praise the one on high who's at work down low, amongst the economically low, amongst the emotionally low, in all the low places of our world and our lives. We praise him. Let me give you two practical things to do in light of this psalm. Just two application points. Here's the first one. The first one is just praise God. It's real easy. Hallelujah. Do the very thing that the psalm says to do. Praise him. Praise the God on high who's come down low, who's humbled himself so that he can be involved in your life. Do whatever it takes to praise him. Sing to him, talk to him, write to him, take walks with him, tell him why he's beautiful to you. Praise him in here on Sundays at worship. Praise him tomorrow out there at work. Just praise him. Like your praise does not have to be eloquent and poetic like the Psalms. It can just be normal words that you communicate to God very consciously, giving him the credit that only he deserves. Just praise him. Here's the second thing. Widen the circle of praise. Widen the circle of praise. You know what I mean by that? I just mean invite others in to know this God, to experience this God whom you praise. We do this with all kinds of things very naturally in all areas of our lives, don't we? We naturally praise the things that we love. We praise the things that we like. We'd be like, have you, been, have you been to that new restaurant? It is tremendous. You need to go. And when you go, get this. Right? Have you seen that new movie? It was awesome. You've got to go see it. Widen the circle of praise with God. Right? Share about how he has lifted you off the ash heap. How he's met you in the brokenness of your heart. Just bear witness to it. You don't even have to prove him to others. Bear witness to your experience of him. Widen the circle of praise. When I was at that U2 concert that night, uh, you know what Bono did right before he sang Where the Streets Have No Name? Uh, he walked up, walk up to the microphone with just his guitar, and, and it was just him, and he sang the first stanza of Amazing Grace. Just him. 
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. It's like he was widening the circle of praise. He was inviting others to praise. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't verbally invite us to praise, but you know what happened? Most of the stadium started singing amazing grace. Even the people, which is a lot of them, that don't even believe in the amazing grace of God were singing amazing grace. He widened the circle of praise. He invited people to sing of the grace of our God so that they might begin to experience him. Hallelujah. Praise the God on high who's at work down low. Let's thank him. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.